0: Last weekend, I was introduced to a series on the life of Jesus and his followers called The Chosen. I'm not really someone who actually enjoys biopics about Jesus. I'm not sure why. It's just never been something I've, I've really wanted to watch. But at the same time, this series caught my attention after the first few episodes. The pacing of the show was actually really slow. Uh, By the end of the first season, which is only eight episodes long, they've only gotten about four to six chapters into the Gospels. They end with the women, the woman at the well. So eight eight hours and that's where you end. (laughs) And the pacing just really struck me a lot, but it wasn't the only thing. This show and its showrunners are being really intentional about something that they're doing. And that is not only looking at the life of Jesus, but specifically at how he was impacted by the people around him and how he, he impacted them. The story is incredibly grounded in scripture, but also it's, it focuses a lot, I think in a new way, on Jesus and his followers as human beings human beings. There's moments of deep pain and betrayal, of course, in the midst of this, but there's also really phenomenal moments of humor and camaraderie that happen in the midst of the wedding at Cana, or just as you meet, you know, Jesus called sets of brothers to him, you know, James and John. There's humor that happens in the relationship between brothers and how they they interact, and it shows up in, in this series, and I was just so pleasantly surprised by it. Well why am I telling you this? There is a scene in the third episode that has been running through my mind all week as I prepared for today. It's just Jesus camping in the wilderness and you're not you can't quite see that. We're going to turn the lights down don't worry and he's just doing normal everyday things. He's making a fire, he's preparing a meal, he's uh getting cleaned up, and he's having this really vulnerable conversation with his father in heaven. While watching, I found myself confronted with the way that I have grown kind of sanitized, and I'm guessing I'm not alone, to many of the counts in the gospels when Jesus, uh, in human flesh, is just engaging with the world and doing everyday things. And even in that, probably specifically important for today, this includes his temptation in the wilderness that we're gonna be talking about through the whole season of Lent. There's something in me that had grown really sanitized in the picture that I had of what this would have been like for him. And so I wanna show a clip to you, believe it or not. Uh, They posted this on YouTube, so that was helpful. I wanna show a clip to you of Jesus in the wilderness. Now let me let me tell you this, we're going to watch the clip. The clip is not intended as far as I know to actually portray Matthew 4, <laughs> which is where we're going today. And you'll be able to tell that because Jesus is making food and eating, right? So, don't make that connection. But my hope is that as we watch, it'll actually just help to break down a little bit of the barriers that easily come up between us and reading the scriptures. Um, of this Jesus incarnate. And after that is finished, Caleb's gonna come up and uh, present the scriptures to us. So let's pray that video.
1: The temptation of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was famished. Then the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus said to him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and ministered to him. This is the word of the Lord.
0: An account of Jesus' temptation is the Gospel reading for every single year in the Revised Common Lectionary. For the first Sunday in Lent. My guess is that many of you, like me, didn't actually grow up using a lectionary at all, or at least seeming so, and likely some of you believe its use is specifically for Roman Catholic and Anglican worship, but it's actually used far more widely than that, all around the world. A lectionary is simply a reading plan. There are Jewish lectionaries. There are full lectionaries of the Gospels, of the whole Bible. You may have read the Bible in a year or read it chronologically so that you're reading the prophets and the historical books at the same time. Those are all lectionaries. The thing about the common lectionary is that It's intention is actually to be used corporately in worship so that the body is connected and steeped in Scripture together. Steeped in Scripture not only here in a location, but also around the world. The lectionary includes an Old Testament reading for each week. It includes a psalm, a New Testament reading from a letter, and a gospel. And so for the first Sunday of Lent every year, One of the accounts from the synoptics talks about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. The lectionary also aligns with the church calendar, just in case you need a little bit of a reminder. If you remember, the church calendar is this yearly cycle designed by God's people over the centuries, starting even with the early church, uh, to help us shape and be shaped by time, Jesus' timeline. Jesus' life and his work among his people, uh, rather than other calendars, like the school calendar that seems to oppress us in this place. Uh, It's it's declaring together that Jesus is the Lord of time and his life shapes ours and we uh, conform our life to his. The season of Lent, which is the season between Epiphany, which was gold, right? Between Epiphany and Easter, which begins later on in April, is probably one of the most misunderstood, I would say. Uh, As Dan mentioned er earlier, from the outside, it seems like a time to test the human will when all of our New New Year's resolutions have just gone in the garbage. Right? We're a few months on. Everybody's given up. Now it's time to test it again. It's another reminder. Perhaps that's why Lent is actually so popular, even kind of outside the church in a weird way. People give up chocolate. People give up um, social media, as was, was mentioned, sugar, sugar, right? Very, very common things. There are lots of other things. But deep down, the invitation to participate in the season of Lent is much more than a yearly cleanse for 40 days. Our brothers and sisters in the first few centuries had a lot more in mind than that when they began to shape their time. Lent is a season of preparation. It's a season of preparation. Forty days between Ash Wednesday, when we remember that we're made of dust, which was this past Wednesday, all the way up to Good Friday, which this year is on April 10th, minus the Sundays here in the West. So just make sure you don't get messed up with the calculation there. There's no Sundays included in that count in the West. And it's a season when the church prepares for remembering and celebrating the events of Easter. Remembering the death of our Lord and the resurrection of Jesus. But it is also a season that is hopefully going to remind us of our mortality even when we don't really want to be reminded. Like Advent, Lent is an invitation to pare down and simplify in the midst of busyness and noise. But it's also a time to introduce practices that we may not do all the time. Fasting, solitude, silence, and, and prayer. So that we draw near to the heart of God and to our need for a savior, where where Epiphany emphasized Jesus as the Son of God, the glorified one, Lent tends to shift over and focus on Jesus' humanity a little bit more. And so, for the next four. Of the next, sorry, for four of the next five Sundays, get that going. For four of the next five Sundays, we are going to explore this account of the temptation and ask questions about how Jesus is compassionately equipped to not only help us when we're tempted, which the writer of Hebrews says in chapter two, but to save us. Each week, we're going to delve deeper into a portion of this passage and connect it with other stories in the Gospels, and then at the end of five weeks on April 5th, we're going to celebrate the coming of the King into Jerusalem with Palm Sunday and a baptism service. Today, it's my job to simply introduce you to the passage (laughs) Uh, and to prompt us all to begin this journey together in preparing for Easter and asking the Lord what he's calling us to do in this season. So let's just start out at verse one. Matthew four, starting at verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights And afterward, he was famished. Now, I'm using the New Revised Standard Version, just so you know. You know, whenever we're reading scripture, it's important to pay attention to the first words. Every word, obviously. But these connecting words, like then or therefore, they're typically used by the author of, uh, (laughs) well, any author, frankly. To connect and bridge two things So this is really important. When you start, especially when you're reading something potentially out of context and it says then, you need to go back. It's really important to go back and grab the context because we need to make a connection between what the biblical writer is trying to say before and what's happening now. So if we go right up just a little bit to Matthew 3, we see the account of Jesus' baptism. And it says in verse 16, when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and the lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We'll come back to Jesus' sonship in just a minute, but it's important to have these things in mind as we move into the temptation narrative. So following Jesus' baptism, and Matthew doesn't tell us the amount of time between these two events, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. While we may be curious as to what the mode in which this happens or how this kind of looks, there is something really important that we need to catch here. What is clear is that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that descended upon Jesus as a dove, has ultimate agency in Jesus' movement. He's united with the Spirit here, even though he's going into into the desert, wilderness, sorry, wilderness to be tempted, and even though the devil has his own plans. The Spirit has ultimate agency here. It's a bit tricky, but what's clear is that it's the Spirit that's guiding Jesus and prompting him to enter into this season of fasting and solitude. You know, 40 days and 40 nights should be really familiar to you, at least I would imagine it would. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting, and all three synoptic gospels record this time period for the temptation, which I think is is important. Think about it. In the history of Israel, all of these different periods of 40 days, or maybe 40 years, that can come to mind. Rebecca will put this up on the screen for us. Think about these. The flood. In Genesis 7, Moses on Mount Sinai, both receiving the law and interceding after Israel's idolatry with the whole golden calf incident, he spends 40 days and 40 nights fasting before the Lord in the presence of God. Also, obviously, Israel's time in the wilderness for 40 years, because of their unbelief that God would do what he had promised, that he would give them the land of Canaan, and because of that, a whole generation... Passes away. Some interpreters will say when we see forty years, it's intended to be read as a generation passing away. Elijah is also sustained in First Kings nineteen by one meal given to him by an angel uh, as he flees from Jezebel for forty days. It's quite the meal—forty days. And there are definitely more examples, but what should be clear to us is that Jesus' biographers are making an overt connection between Jesus' life and the life of God's historical people, Israel. It's another thing to keep right in front of you as we continue through the story. At the end of the 40 days, Jesus is hungry. My translation says famished, which I think is kind of very proper, very famished, Um, and here is where I was confronted by a picture of what Jesus was experiencing that was far less relatable than I really should have. You know, I, I somehow get a picture in my head of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, him hanging out in this flat space, which, by the way, I find flat open spaces really peaceful, just he's out on his own and he's peaceful. He's sitting still for 40 days. He's just legs crossed on the ground. There's a weird safety in that that I think uh, discounts some things here. Oddly enough, it's easier for our perception of this passage to look more peaceful than risky. But Jesus is human, fully human and fully divine. He has a need for food to survive. He has a need for warmth of a fire. Being incarnate in human flesh means that Jesus is physically fragile in these moments as we would be. And I really needed that scene from The Chosen to remind me of that coming into today. If I really think about 40 days, really look at them in human terms, Jesus would have been very weak at this point. He's dehydrated, maybe he has a headache, his stomach is aching, or he's moved to a point of numbness there. He's likely lost some of the muscle mass he would have gained in his trade. Now, of of course, in Jesus's culture, the practice of fasting would have been far more common, but we can't deny that he would have been weak. He would have been weak. And Matthew's note feels like a little bit of an understatement to say that he would have been hungry after 40 days. And this is when the tempter comes to Jesus. When he is at his weakness. While I don't want to go too deeply here because of where we're going to go in the next few weeks, I do want us to notice a few things, and this is one of them. Jesus has been brought into the desert by the Spirit, To fully embrace that weakness and in that weakened state to be brought to a time of testing so that of his heart and his mind. God chose weakness to reveal his heart. He also chose weakness to reveal to us what new life looks like. Even when we're tempted. And another thing to notice as we keep going is that the temptations that are offered to Jesus come with conditions. They're not gifts. It's not here, take this. They're set up as if-then proposals. Strings are always attached when it comes to sin (laughs) and temptation. It's not a free gift. Some strings are always attached when it comes to temptation, both in Jesus' encounter and ours. If you are the son of God, the tempter says in verse 3, and he's called tempter just to highlight once again the function that the devil has in this place. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus' most pressing most urgent need is the place where the enemy tempts him first. It's like low-lying fruit. Right where it hurts, that's the first temptation. Jesus is hungry and weak, and he needs food to survive, and so the enemy says, just just do a little miracle. Just, Just turns these stones into bread. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's just you and me here. Nobody will know. And then in the second temptation... Starting in verse 5, the devil takes him up to a high point on the temple in Jerusalem, the holy city, the historical meeting place between God and his people, a place historically of intimacy and of prayer and where the glory of God is intended to dwell. And the devil says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Didn't God say that he would command his angels to catch you and keep you safe? And then lastly, in this this third temptation, the enemy takes Jesus to a high mountain and gives him the best view ever. All the kingdoms of the world and all their beauty and all their splendor. And this time he makes his offer just, just a little bit differently, perhaps a little more tentatively than he did before, emphasizing first what he will do before asking Jesus to do something. All of these I will give to you. The kingdoms of the earth, Obviously, the greatest reward the Son of God could ever want, it seems. His kingdom affirmed, his authority established. But there's a condition if you will fall down and worship me. You can skip all the pain and the suffering and the frailty of being human and just just jump to the goal. Just get there, a kingdom. It's just that the kingdom will be bestowed upon you by me instead. That I'll be your gracious benefactor and give it to you. And how does Jesus respond to these temptations? You know, the words may be very familiar to us, right? This is a pretty familiar passage, but it would have been really blatant to God's people in the early days that Jesus was steeped in the scriptures. Completely steeped. I may be hungry, he says, but one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8. Jesus has learned and remembers the lesson that God tried to give Israel when he humbled them in their 40 days in the wilderness. God is your sustainer, your provider, Jehovah Jireh. Jesus has learned this lesson. He knows it well. And what about the second one? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Once again, quoting from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 6, Jesus replies, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Right after God, sorry, right after his commands for Israel to love the Lord with their whole being, to pass on the covenant of love, to their children, to resist idolatry, right after simplifying the entire message down to love me. In Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people to not put the Lord to their test, but instead to trust in his covenant faithfulness and his covenant love. Just as Charles was talking about this morning, trust in the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus' response to these first two temptations are actually kind of surprising when you think about it, especially given how they're framed. The enemy seems to be questioning Jesus' deity here. "If you are the Son of God, which has just been declared over him by the Lord from heaven, if you are the Son of God, if you're Him, prove it. Just just provide for yourself, save yourself. Show that you have authority over things in heaven and on earth, the angels and the bread. Show your authority, which is interesting because authority is one of the biggest themes all the way through Matthew's gospel. But Jesus doesn't respond to the enemy's questions about his divinity by proving it. He replies... And reveals himself as a faithful son of Israel. A servant of the Lord. And this is only further confirmed in his response to the third temptation. The devil's offer in in verse 9, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus says to him, Away with you, Satan. I'll name you. I know who you are. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, I, I will say this. This is actually the downfall of the translation that I'm reading from. Because my translation isn't exactly literal. And it's easy to lose the connection between what Jesus says here. And actually the original language. Which is quoting directly from the Greek Old Testament. The Greek version of the Old Testament. Where it says, the Lord your God... You shall worship, and him only shall you serve. From Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus quotes straight from the heart of the law in the Shema. After 40 days in the wilderness, tired and hungry, Jesus is revealed to be the faithful servant of God that the nation of Israel struggled to be. This man, this Jesus of Nazareth, led out into the wilderness and indeed tested By the enemy, tested by what he suggests and what he offers to him. And to deny that these are real temptations for Jesus is, in fact, to deny that he was incarnate in human flesh. But Jesus responds to the temptations from a place of unity with the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit and from deep faithfulness to the Word of God. He responds in spirit and in truth. The very model of a true worshiper, as he will say in John 4. In spirit and in truth. Maybe this is why our brothers and sisters chose this passage to initiate us into into preparing for Easter. Jesus in his humanity reveals to us what it means to faithfully worship our God. The request that the Lord had asked of his people from the beginning. True and faithful worship means following Jesus' lead. An example by being united with and led by the Spirit. Steeped in the revelation of God that's given to us in the scriptures. And yes, overcoming sin and temptation even when we are weak. perhaps most vitally, our recognition of a need for a savior. Dr. Donnell Franklin, I'm going to paraphrase her. She's one of the professors from the school that I go to. She said, we bring the weakness. This is the heart of the gospel. We bring the weakness and God brings the strength. And in that way, God alone is glorified. We may not like it, but we bring the weakness. We don't bring the strength. If we read Paul well, this is pretty obvious. We bring the weakness and God brings the strength. And that way, not to us, but to his name be the glory. This is what Lent is all about. Recognizing our need for a savior and drawing near to our God who acted first, who initiated the great rescue plan. (laughs) So much of the struggles of Israel... Came down to their failure to remember that God was their rescuer. And no other. The prophet Isaiah talks about this so clearly Israel's temptations to go to even Egypt for help, Egypt that enslaved them for years. To be honest, I think we have the same problem. We forget that God doesn't want us to rescue ourselves. Our perfection and strength isn't what he wants from us. At least not a perfection and strength that looks like us. It's in recognizing our weakness and imperfection that our need for God's grace and rescue are brought most clearly into focus. But if we're resistant to entering into those places of weakness and imperfection and laying them open to the light of Jesus' compassionate love, we are resisting the renewal that comes from being united with him in his death and his new life. This season in the church calendar is an invitation to great risk with great reward. It's not about testing the strength of human will. It's an invitation to fully recognize our need for God, our need to draw near to the one who humbled himself in every way and took the form of a servant in flesh and in bone so that he might only help us to overcome sin and death, but also the enemy who has no power in the name of Jesus. So what's the greatest risk of this season? I'm pretty sure it's the exposure of our idolatry. The exposure of the things that we go to to save us and to comfort us and to transform us rather than the living God. We lean on our own pride and self-sufficiency. We lean on plans It's a risk because it exposes these places in our hearts where we're not, our hearts and our lives and our minds, our whole beings, where we're not actually, we don't really believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Maybe this is why God's people fast in various forms or build spaces of solitude and silence and prayer. In this season. To help us see more clearly our own brokenness, the brokenness that took Jesus to the cross. It's incredibly vulnerable, deprived of those things that make us feel strong. We're instead laid bare and exposed to the rawness of what it means to be formed from dust. Wilderness spaces reveal dark places that we would rather remain hidden. And participating in Lent is about surrendering what we're afraid to let go of to Jesus. Our power, pain, anger, addiction, and idolatry. (laughs) And stepping into that space requires courage that God promises to provide in his deep and abiding presence with us in his spirit. In that place, we slowly learn to open our hands to God. It's the picture that Henri Nouwen uses. To open our hands to God and the trust that he will do what, he's gonna, what he has said he will do. And that he is who he says he is. That he is love. He's joy. He's peace. He's life. He's healing. And he is light. No matter the terrain of our lives, whether rocky or smooth, whether storms are raging or fog is blinding us from the way ahead, He is our anchor. And he is the one who saves us when we're drowning. And the question is this. Will you and I allow the Lord to reveal to us what is still tied to flesh and brokenness and sin? Will we reach up from the waves and ask God for healing and freedom that he alone can bring? A great rescue. That's the reward. Where once there was darkness, the Lord pours out himself into our darkest places and offers forgiveness and love beyond our wildest imaginings. To the deep places in you that no one else knows about, that have grown hungry and thirsty and dry, Jesus gives himself as the bread of life and living water. Your sustainer. In a world of chaos and to-do lists and sleepless nights and frayed relationships, Jesus invites us to rest in his loving embrace and to let him care for the things that weigh us down. He invites you to this invitation to a yoke that is easy and a burden that's light. And to the light of his life from which everything else just grows dim. In comparison. And I don't know about you, but to go to Good Friday and the Resurrection Sunday from that standpoint is exciting to me. To grieve the death of my Lord and sing hallelujah he is risen from that standpoint? To be caught up in the very gospel having been prepared by being in the scriptures and being with God, being reminded that we are washed clean. I want to be there. I want to return to the cross with a deeper recognition of Jesus' love and power on our behalf. His sacrifice for us. It's all about constantly returning. Returning to the cross, returning, returning to the empty tomb, returning to the ascension, The fact that Jesus is up on the throne. (laughs) This is Lent. Being transformed. Being transformed by the gospel. Let me invite you today to a space of reflection and greater openness to the God who loved you. And still loves you and will always love you. I know that sometimes we don't know where to start. And language trips... Tri- wow. Right there. Language trips us up. That's right. <laughs> this is one of the ways that music can actually help us. So for the next few weeks, we're going to respond to what God is speaking to us. How his spirit is moving by singing this prayer Of restoration and renewal. I can invite Jonathan and his group up. Restore my soul, it says. Revive my heart. Renew my life in every part. Lord, reveal to me what sin remains and lead me to the cross again. At the cross, we declare these words, at the cross I'll find a way to live the life that your hands have made. So find me there, Lord, and help me stay in true surrender to you, my Savior. We're gonna sing these words. So let me invite you, taking whatever posture feels right to you. Sitting, standing. Kneeling, moving. The Spirit of God moves in each one of us in different ways, and these postures can help us bodily connect with what we're doing in ways that we often keep it in our heads, right? It's important. Maybe you're going to raise your hands, open your hands literally to the Lord. Let me invite you to pray these words and sing them together as one. Let me invite you into the embrace of renewal and restoration. Not only as individuals, but together. We sing it together. Restore our souls, Lord. Revive our hearts. Oh, to be like thee. Heavenly Father, we come to you. and We praise the name of Jesus. I believe that you are calling us into life that looks more like you. And that that journey may be painful and risky, but the reward is greater than I can even fathom. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we respond to your word this morning. Amen.